What's up, everyone? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and today I'm excited to be sitting down with my buddy Tyler Tringas of StoreMapper. How's it going, Tyler? Hey, Cortland. Doing well. Thanks for having me. Uh, no problem. So we already did a text interview back in August. You're one of the first people to come on Indie Hackers after the launch. And then we met at MicroConf a couple of weeks ago in person. And I told you, I think, then that your StoreMapper interview is probably the one that I reference the most often when telling people about educational interviews and, and how to get started as an indie hacker, so to speak. Uh, and the reason for that is because your story is full of lessons that are important for anyone wanting to start an internet business or a project that makes money online. So for example, and I think this is a good place to start, a lot of people starting a business struggle for months with getting their product out the door, but you sat down and built StoreMapper and had paying customers in something like 36 hours. So what's the story behind that? <laughs> well, first of all, I think it's it's very high praise that um, you're often citing StoreMapper considering the sort of caliber of other entrepreneurs that you've interviewed on Indie Hackers. So uh, that's awesome to hear again. <laughs> um, in terms of, of kind of, you know, building StoreMapper really quickly, th- there's sort of two components of that. I mean, th- the first part is, is that it wasn't that quick in the sense of, you know, you're not counting the sort of many other products and almost products that I kind of built and launched that just totally failed um, before StoreMapper. So the process from starting that to launching a product was actually a little bit longer. But StoreMapper itself, yeah, it was basically conceived and built and launched in about 36 hours. Um, Essentially, you know, StoreMapper is a store locator as a service. So you've probably seen this kind of a product all over the internet. You want to find out where to buy your favorite brand or your favorite new juice or whatever. Put in your zip code and, you know, kind of Google Maps comes up and tells you what locations you can buy it at. So, um, you know, technically that's basically a kind of, you know, Ruby on Rails app that can sort of handle the uploading of all that information, you know, where are the stores, uh, what's their addresses, what's their latitude and longitude, all that kind of stuff. And then an embeddable JavaScript widget uh, that you can put on your website and that renders the kind of store locator. At that point in time, I had a lot of things going on in my life, but one of the things I was doing was uh, freelance web development for Shopify uh, store owners. And a couple of them asked me to build them a store locator. And I kind of did the math on what it would take for me to build that myself uh, at my hourly rate. And I was like, guys, this is going to, you know, cost you a few thousand dollars. And they were like, oh, sure, no problem. You know, we need it. So obviously there was like a pretty good willingness to pay there. Um, So I kind of just put it down in my little idea notebook, like, hey, maybe I can productize that, um, that kind of of a product. And I kind of did a little research, didn't really see a good option put it in the back pocket. And then um, a couple weeks later, uh, yeah, I, I was booking a long flight from San Francisco to Buenos Aires, Argentina. And it was like a first class flight. So uh, I booked it with miles, kind of did a little travel hacking. So I had basically this like really long period of time in like a cushy first class seat. And I just sat down and built and launched it. Basically, soup to nuts, you know, new Rails project um, at the start of the flight, landed, launched it, sent an email to my existing freelance clients, like everyone I'd ever worked for. And we had paying customers that day, basically. That's awesome. I think by comparison, one of the biggest mistakes that people make is to work on something for three months or six months or even a year, just heads down coding, not show it to anybody, not run their ideas by anybody and ultimately release a product that nobody wants to pay for because it's chock full of features that don't matter to them. And as depressing as that sounds, that's the really the optimistic case because you know the pessimistic case and what happens probably more often is that somebody works on something for six months, uh, never releases it, and then just gets demotivated and, and shuts it down. So the case for building something quickly is not only that will you, will you avoid adding a bunch of features that nobody wants and wasting time building things that people won't pay for, but you also are way less susceptible to getting burned out and demotivated. Was the fact that you could build StoreMapper in 36 hours a crucial factor in you choosing to work on that idea over the other ideas in your idea notebook? Yeah, well, so at the time I was in a fairly unique overall life situation. I I was actually working on 
you know, what ultimately would be a kind of angel funded, like more traditional startup. Um, so I was already working, you know, 60, 70, 80 hours a week trying to get that off the ground. And I was freelancing on the side to sort of make some money. And what I really wanted to do was to get some kind of recurring revenue into that mix so that I could start to dial down the freelance hours and allocate more time to the startup. Um, so just in that life situation, it was sort of mandatory that I find products that could be uh, launched really quickly. But I do think that that is something that even if you had more time, if your aim was to sort of build a product or, or become an indie hacker, you know, maybe transitioning from freelance work or a full-time job, trying to find ideas that can be built really quickly like that is a really good component of success um, for a lot of reasons. You know, one reason is that a lot of them will fail. <laughs> um, so it's just very good to sort of get the product out there um, and start getting feedback, you know, kind of immediately. I guess I would say that's, that's kind of the main reason is that you just have no idea if it's going to work. But it also just kind of tends to be the germ or the sort of seed of a good bootstrappable idea is if you can very quickly get to, you know, a sort of thing that is creating value, even if you do what I did, which is like you strip away everything that people think is important about, you know, having a SaaS business. We didn't have a logo. I didn't have the email address. The landing page was hilariously bad. Like, like, you know, you had no way to cancel or like change your password. Like there were just so many things that were not in there, but like it did what it said on the label, right? Like it would like, you could upload a spreadsheet of stores and it could make a store locator. And like, if you find something that you can generate that value that quickly, it's probably the good seed of an idea. Uh, that's something that you could bootstrap into like a full business. And just for context, how much revenue is Stormapper doing today? We're doing, uh, last month, we crossed $25,000 a month. Cool. So I want to go back to this this ideas thing uh, because you mentioned that you have an idea notebook and I too have an idea notebook. How many ideas do you have in there? You know, at this point, I, I don't even know. I've kind of stopped keeping a proper notebook now that I kind of have operating businesses. Um, but, you know, one thing that that process of keeping that notebook did was it allowed me to kind of really refine the process of coming up with an idea and then figuring out how to like dismiss it really fast. I think that like one of the biggest problems that a lot of entrepreneurs face when they're in that phase of like coming up with ideas and trying to figure out which is the one is kind of getting like hung up on a single idea that's like a little bit fatally flawed in some way, like either they don't know how to market it or it's just kind of a too big of an idea that it's going to take, you know, too much um, kind of like overall development time. They don't have time to allocate to it or maybe they're not technical or they're technical, but they, you know, it's like got some machine learning aspect of it that they don't know how to do, right? There's like one little flaw that, that prevents them from being able to just sit down and do it. And they just kind of hang on to that and they talk to their friends about it and it just kind of sits around there. And one of the important parts about the idea notebook is being able to like write something down as a potential idea and then like run through this really fast list of like, could it scale? Like, could I find the customers for it? Can I build it myself? Like all that kind of stuff. And then like quickly kind of dismiss it actually, <laughs> um, which I think is a, is a really important part about finding a good idea. Yeah, I totally agree. And from a lot of the people that I've talked to, it, it can be hard just knowing what it is that makes any particular idea bad or good. So if you're an experienced entrepreneur, you might say, okay, I need to be able to market it. I need to be able to actually build it. I need to have a distribution strategy for it. It needs to be something that I can launch quickly. Did you have some sort of formal checklist for evaluating the ideas in your idea notebook? Or let's say you were to quit Stormapper today and quit everything else that you're working on. How would you go about evaluating ideas and determining if one idea is better than another? You know, at this point, there's such just tremendous resources um, online of different entrepreneurs sharing these kinds of things, like like indie hackers. <laughs> I would probably read through indie hackers and just refresh my sort of knowledge on, you know, what 
kind of mistakes people have made, what things they didn't think were going to be a problem when they like plunged headlong into an idea that turned out to be like a big deal. Like, you know, something that is like a big negative for, for example, for Storm Mapper, even though it wasn't deal breaker, is that um, my target customer doesn't really like congregate anywhere. They're not listed like e-commerce store owners or like VP of marketing at random small to medium sized brands don't hang out anywhere. So if I hadn't found like one or two inbound lead channels, there would really not be any way for me to kind of systematically go out and do outbound sales, right? I can't just find a bunch of e-commerce store owners and like pick their brain and pitch them my product like you might be able to do with, you know, uh, bloggers, right? Because they're super visible and they hang out on, you know, a lot of very popular blogging forums and things like that. So I guess I sort of picked up a couple of those things from things like the Lean Startup and stuff like that. But, you know, nowadays that's what drives me to sort of blog about my experience is to just sort of help people see down and around those corners a little bit at things that might be kind of a fatal flaw for an idea. And which is something that I think, you know, for example, you could use indie hackers for and all kinds of like other transparent startups that are really blogging about like you know, what's actually going on in their business. You know, you've seen a lot, for example, um, this is like going a little bit far down the road, but you've seen actually a lot of kind of like transparent bootstrapped-ish startups dealing with like cash flow crunches, right? Like hiring too many people, even though their like revenue was growing strong, they like hire too fast. And like, so like, you know, like Buffers blogs about it and Bear Metrics blogs about it and ConvertKit blogs about it, like how they like hired super fast and then were like, oh crap, like, our top line is doing well, but like I might have to like lay people off. I have, you know, that kind of stuff. Like, like paying attention to that and then being able to kind of see around that corner from where you are, I think is it's really valuable. It's cool that you mentioned Andy Hackers as being a, a source of inspiration and, and learning because it's exactly why I built the website. It was so that, you know, ideally, if we have a collection of stories of people doing this, some easy that's that's it's easy to find and easy to browse through that you could just go through it piecemeal and learn from other people's mistakes. And in a sort of meta way, I wrote a blog post earlier about how I came up with the idea for Indie Hackers. And I had kind of this like rudimentary checklist for how I evaluated different ideas uh, and compared them to each other. Because I came down to Indie Hackers versus three other ideas. And one of the biggest ones, and I think it applies to you, one of the biggest things I had on there was retention. I wanted to make something where customers wouldn't churn very often. And it was a direct reaction to my previous product, Task Force, where I had built something and people would come in the door and then they would churn. And they might like the products, they just didn't want to create tasks and they would just forget about it. And with Store Mapper, you have almost the opposite problem, or not even a problem really. You just don't have to worry that much about it because you're just a store locator, right? People put it on their website, it just stays there. And they're a customer probably until they shut their business down, which is awesome. Are there any other things that make Store Mapper particularly good? as a business? Um, Well, I think you definitely hit on, you know, one of the main ones, right? Which is that, you know, there's really high retention. And this is where like stuff like Indie Hackers, I think is so useful now to really put things into context to see like, okay, once you reach some degree of scale, what things matter across a bunch of different businesses. And you can see like, you know, one of the problems that we don't have at StormMapper is dealing with super high churn, and we also don't have to deal with a incredibly high support load, right? So because like our product is kind of more or less set it and forget it, that means that, you know, for every, like we went from, you know, let's say 500 uh, active, you know, paying customers to like nearly 2000. And like basically our regular, like our number of like support tickets per day did not change. It's not at all a function of our existing customers. It's a function of just growth, just new customers coming in because per- pretty much like we have some sort of onboarding stuff with them. We help them get their data formatted. We help the, you know, the, the kind of uh, embedded product look good on their website and they're pretty much good to go for, you know, more or less in perpetuity um, as opposed to something like, you know, a, bug tracking SaaS for agile dev teams where people are using it all the time. And as they grow, and if you 3X your active customer base, you would at least 3X your support requirements, right? So 
that's something you might not necessarily think about when you're just, even if you're just being really sensible and lean and you're talking to customers and you're figuring out what's your pain point and all that kind of stuff. If you don't think about how are they going to use this and what's retention going to look like and what's the support requirements going to look like, you, you can sort of end up in a place where you sort of solve the pain point, but you haven't necessarily built the kind of business that you wanted to build. That's something that I think it's really useful to, to sort of, um, go through all these businesses and look around those those corners basically yeah i totally agree i think there's something to be said for especially if you're newer taking some time to read about people who've come before you so you don't end up repeating their mistakes because a lot of these things are predictable if you have some experience or if you've read about them but if you're just starting out you don't necessarily think that far ahead Uh, when i built task force i really didn't think that much about retention or customer support and i had the same problems that you mentioned even when I was building indie hackers, I really didn't think that much about how mind-numbing it would be to eventually end up selling ads. And it's something that I, I would have I would have put more put more thought into if I had researched content businesses a little bit more. But uh, yeah, there's definitely two ways to learn, and one is from your own experience, and one is from other people's experiences. And I think they're both crucial. One of the things that people struggle with a lot whenever they start a new business is growth, especially going from zero to one, kind of getting your your first customer in the door. Additionally, going from you know your first customer on to hundreds of customers like you've done with StormMapper. And one of the cool things that I've seen from business to business is that the things that get you your first few customers aren't necessarily what get you to 100. And the things that get you 100 customers aren't necessarily what get you to 1,000 customers. There usually ends up being different phases where your customers come in through different channels. Can you talk a little bit about how you got your very first customers? Uh, yeah, totally. I think you're right. I mean, I think actually, um, I think... I want to say that Rob Walling was the first person that I saw characterize this like this, but as kind of like a stair-stepping approach to growth where you sort of will find one or two channels that work really well to a point and there's just diminishing returns and you have to like switch gears to hop on to a new track and that's kind of what you end up doing is, is leapfrogging from kind of acquisition channel to acquisition channel as you grow. Um, for me, early on, I mean, I would say the most integral part to me getting my first customers was the, you know, previous year that I spent freelancing for, um, you know, e-commerce brands, mostly on Shopify. That was where, you know, I got a very strong sense of the willingness to pay. uh, And the, the original sort of product idea came from those clients. And then the very first paying customers came from that customer base. And, you know, that's kind of one of the things that, I sometimes find myself like repeating and saying to people all the time who who kind of ask the question about, you know, finding your first customers or finding a good idea is sometimes there's like a little bit of path dependency, right? There's sort of things that you can't necessarily shortcut or sidestep around. And one of those may be that like if, if you want to build some amazing new accounting software, you need to go spend a year freelancing and consulting for accountants. And that's just, you know, the the main way that you get in there, make some contacts and find your first customers. And so that's how I found the very first ones. Of course, that that's not a channel, really. That was just, you know, a couple dozen existing clients. After that, I started to get really manual. So, you know, one of the things is where do your customers congregate? I mentioned earlier that, like, in general, my customer base doesn't congregate places, but there was at least one small area where they were congregating, which are the forums for the individual like e-commerce uh, platforms. So for example, Shopify, BigCommerce, those kinds of things. Those all have forums. And I would just go onto the forums and you know, some people will be explicitly saying like, hello, I would like to build a store locator. And I would just you know, say, hey, try this app. Um, but other places I would just go and be helpful with people who seemed like they were in similar uh, they might be potential customers, and I had a little, you know, signature in like a forum signature that just had like the pitch for for store mapper. And I wouldn't really try to be spammy about it. I would just like help people out with their like customization problems, and that got you know I would say uh, the next few dozen uh, customers. And then another kind of tactic that works very early on is to look for people who are actively sort of seeking this kind of general solution, right? So who are sort of putting their pain point out there. And that usually comes in the form of uh, jobs boards, 
right? So I would go on uh, like Upwork, or I guess uh, back then it was it was Odesk and Elance and those things, and look for people who were looking to hire freelancers to build them a store locator. And I would just pitch them and say, look, you know, just use my app instead. It's a lot cheaper. But that's you know pretty broadly applicable. Like hopefully, if your your sort of business idea is good, people should be somewhere looking for it. And those things can be like fairly kind of reciprocal, right? So like if people are really fundamentally not looking for your product idea, then you might not have a very good business idea, right? Like if, if your customer doesn't know that they need this and they're just under no circumstances, you know, Googling for it or searching for it or anything, um, it's going to be very hard to actually find customers. So sometimes you need to kind of iterate back and forth between the methods of finding your first customers and whether or not that, you know, actually is a good business idea. And sometimes it goes the other direction. Sometimes you just look for people, you know, kind of spelling out those pain points and that's where you get your idea for a business, you know? Yeah. Trevor McKendrick came on Indie Hackers last week, I believe, he did an interview and he had something to say that's very related to this, which is that people overlook how much of an advantage it is to be small because what it takes to move the needle at a small scale is usually just a little bit of manual effort, right? If you're trying to get your business off the ground and you only have one customer or no customers, then getting to five or 10 customers is huge. And to get to five or 10 customers, you don't have to be amazingly clever. You know, you don't have to come up with some sort of Dropbox referral strategy thing that blows the socks off of anything anyone's ever done before. You can just get on the phone or you can do what you did and browse, you know, Upwork or you can find out where people are searching for your problem and contact them on an individual basis and just do one-on-one sales. And this has numerous benefits. Not only does it land to your first customers, but you end up actually having these engaged one-on-one conversations with people who tell you why or why they won't buy your product. And then you can fix your product based on their feedback. It's something that Nathan Barry also really talked about. He basically said that direct sales for him were the answer to pretty much every problem and determining how to market ConvertKit and, and what kind of copy resonated with people and what kind of features resonated with people, what kind of features people wanted to buy uh, and pay for. So I think the part of your interview that I talked to people the most about is how you went on Upwork and you found these people who were searching for the problem that you were solving and engaged them one-on-one because it's just so smart and it's so overlooked. And people trying to figure out how to get their first customers and yet never really connecting the dots on the, the possibility that they could just get them one at a time is really, I think, one of the things that stops a lot of businesses that might otherwise be successful from even getting off the ground. No, I totally agree. And it's really good that you're highlighting that because fundamentally, it's a pretty boring answer to the question of like, how do I get my customers, right? Like, just go find them and talk to them. But like, the things that, you know, become sort of viral posts on Medium about like, you know, how, how to grow your customers are like things that are much, much cleverer, right? And often involve some elaborate partnership or some bit of, you know, kind of coding, uh, growth hack kind of thing. And that's the sort of stuff that kind of is out there in the zeitgeist and, you know, really sort of makes an impression on people. And so they sort of think that they need to do something like that at the very beginning. But the answer is pretty much just like the very boring, like just go find these customers and like pitch them one by one is, is often the very best way to get your first customers. I think it's really important there though. Also, like just to bring it back to what we were talking about before, like how important having like high retention, recurring revenue businesses can be for this, right? Because like if you have a one-time sale or info product kind of thing, this might not work for you. It just might not be worth your time. You might still need to do it to sort of learn, you know, how it works. But if you genuinely are selling a sort of one-off, you know, $39 product, it's really not worth your time to go and like one by one acquire customers. Whereas it is, even if they're going to pay you, you know, 10 or 20 bucks a month, it's, you're sort of, you know, building that cumulative recurring revenue. But if you've got customers that are churning out really fast, or you just have a kind of one-time sale, you need to do this phase for the learning, but it may not really be as kind of um, economically viable as it is for kind of, um, uh, for, for SaaS specifically. Yeah, you have to do the, the math on your business and find out exactly what kind of customer acquisition strategy actually works for you. And again, like we were saying earlier, it doesn't necessarily have to be 
the thing that's going to, to make you a millionaire, if that's what your goal is. Uh, what works for you in the beginning might not be the same strategy, probably won't be the same strategy you use in the end. But yeah, if you're doing one-time sales and you have a low price point, then it's not all that scalable to engage customers one-on-one. But the other half of the equation, and, and you nodded to this, is the learning aspect. Talking to Josh Pickford at Bare Metrics, to David Hauser, uh, who grew Grasshopper to $30 million a year in revenue, they both said the same thing, which is that the most valuable feedback they ever got was doing sales and doing one-on-one calls with individual customers who, when you're actually talking to them uh, face-to-face or or over the phone, will give you the kind of valuable feedback that you're just not going to hear over email. And you're going to learn exactly why they won't buy your product and what you need to do to fix it. And I think oftentimes, even if you're selling a one-off info product or you're selling a SaaS product, uh, and you're in the very early stages of trying to figure out, okay, what is my product? What does it do? What features do I add? Who's going to buy it and why? Uh, having those conversations is crucial because it will influence the direction that you go in. And another thing that's, that's very related to this, I think Clifford Orbeck said this, it's that sales is, is it's the precursor to marketing, right? Marketing is sales at scale. Marketing is what you do once you understand your message and you know what resonates with people and you want to blast it out there and personally to many thousands of people. But sales is is where you learn how to craft your message, right? It's when you're talking to people and you figure out what resonates. And if you can't sell your product to somebody one-on-one, then you're probably not going to be able to sell it to a thousand strangers who visit your landing page, for example. Yeah, completely agree with that. The other thing that you said that really resonated with me was that if people aren't searching for your business online or whatever problem you're solving, then you've got a problem, which is it's funny because... If you go online and you search for startup advice and you end up at a blog post written by a venture capitalist, they're going to tell you, solve an unsolved problem. You know, Solve something that no, that no one's ever solved before. And it was zero to one and Steve Jobs. People don't know what they want until they see it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. People get sucked into that. They're like, okay, I want to make $10,000 a month. So I, what I need to do is solve an unsolved problem. And it's like, no, what you need to do is pick a problem that you know people want a solution for, right? And then make your own solution that's better. Yeah, having zero competitors is a really big problem if you want to be an indie hacker, right? Like you, the fact that if you have zero competitors, it means like, you know, it's just very unlikely that you've discovered a a, a sort of totally unmined vein of problems for a customer base, right? They should be using something to solve this problem and acknowledge that it is a pain point for them. Otherwise, it's just, you know, without... Without sort of VC backing and and a marketing budget and stuff like that, you're just not going to be able to find customers if they're not looking for it. Exactly. It's just way harder. And it's not worth pursuing that unless your goal is to become some sort of billion-dollar company and some sort of winner-take-all market. And the only way that you can do that is by being the first to market, which, if you're listening to this, is probably not your goal. And bringing this back around to Store Mapper, one of the issues that you had was that your customers, as you said, don't congregate in any area online where it's easy for you to market to them. So how did you move beyond this initial phase of reaching out to customers one-on-one and start you know, finding your first channels that could bring in customers in a scalable, more impactful way? Um, you know, it, one thing that was really helpful was the, was the sort of... Um, uh, the fact that many, if not all, of the e-commerce platforms would have kind of app stores and app directories and things like that. Um, so we just made sure that we were getting listed in all of those kind of one by one and did whatever was necessary to sort of integrate with those. And I think that those app stores, particularly kind of B2B app stores, right, where, you know, the people searching are, are going to be businesses, can be a really good starting point for like a first time you know, entrepreneur, first time indie hacker, because you do have kind of a built in discovery mechanism there. If you can find something that, you know, that whole customer type or a big subset of it will need, you know, you can kind of do sort of zero marketing customer acquisition there. And so I think that's a really good channel for for a lot of opportunities. And even though, you know, like the Shopify app store and stuff like that are, are starting to you know, starting to get a little bit of saturation. I think there's still a ton of opportunity there. There's probably a lot of opportunity in like the Slack app directory and stuff like that. Um, Particularly if you can get to be sort of the first mover in one of those marketplaces, you can really find that you can get a lot of of new customers that way. So I think probably the next big thing was like the Shopify app store because Shopify was exploding at that time. It may still be, um, but, you know, at that time it was... You know, pre-IPO was growing super fast 
And we got a lot of customers through that and then just expanding to a bunch of different um, app stores. You know, we were sort of fortunate to be in a niche. So we had pretty good just organic SEO in the sense that, you know, if you like actually searched for store locator app, we'd be the first one that, that came up. Um, and that was uh, pretty helpful. So um, I'm sort of contradicting the, the idea that, you know, you should have no competitors. There were one or two products that were kind of old and crappy and were like, you know, download this PHP file and host it on your own server and stuff. So right. there were some some things in that market, but it was still niche enough that, you know, we were able to sort of dominate the organic search space as well. And so that was really helpful, um, you know, once we sort of got some traction. Did you dedicate a lot of effort to your search engine optimization stuff? No, or did it just kind zero. of naturally happen? No, I that stuff is all too dark arts for me. Like I, it, there are too many unknown unknowns for me that like I just don't really know like what the ROI on my time is going to be, or even the ROI on hiring kind of SEO experts. Um, you know, I it's just doesn't feel like a space where I can have a competitive advantage. Uh, so I tend to just stay away from it. But, you know, we, we basically won the SEO game just by being the, you know, the only sort of viable result, <laughs> right? Like people would search store locator app and then they would stay on our site and they would put in their credit card. And I guess Google just kind of, you know, assumed that that was solving their problem and, and put us number one. Was there anything that you did in terms of trying to grow StoreMapper? Any strategies that you tried or channels you investigated that didn't work out? Yeah, well, so there, I would say that one thing that I tried that didn't work out, and it's not because necessarily it wouldn't work, it's just that um, I had to kind of realize like what I was actually good at and enjoyed doing uh, versus things that might work, but you know I was not good at or didn't enjoy doing, and so kind of half-assed it, um, was like outbound cold calling, right? So, you know, I would occasionally come across a sort of ideal customer, right? Which is, in our case, is very well defined. It's like, you, you see this brand, they say like, you know, uh, brand.com slash where to buy us or whatever. And it's just like a giant page of text, right? It's just hundreds and hundreds of, of names of stores with addresses. It's like, oh, wonderful. This is a perfect potential customer for us. And I kind of tried to like hire a VA to scan the, you know, top 10,000 e-commerce websites and, and find them and cold pitch them and stuff like that. And I, I just sort of realized that I didn't really have the passion to, you know, design a cold outreach email sequence and, uh, hire people and set commission structures and all that kind of stuff. So I just kind of had to acknowledge that, like, if this was going to work, I wasn't going to enjoy it. So um, I may as well just not do it. Uh, because at the end of the day, like, the you know, kind of the whole point of being an entrepreneur and running your own business and stuff is that, you know, you actually do with your time stuff that you kind of enjoy. Um, so that didn't work out. So another aspect of, of your entire story is that at least when you started the business, you were a digital nomad of sorts, right? You were on a plane basically flying across the world when you built it. And you kept traveling for, I think, the first year that you ran the business? Yeah, I would say a good portion of the first four years. So StormMapper is about five years old. And for nearly the last year, I've been stationary. But most of the previous four years, uh, with the exception of about nine months in, in New York, I was on the road quite a bit. Yeah, you're one of the few people I've interviewed for Indie Hackers who's been like that because I've got like kind of a location field where every person I interview, I have a country for where they started their business in. And I think yours just says like remote or something. Was there ever a time where you thought, okay, uh, traveling while, while running this business is not going to work out? And also, you know, even before that, like how did, did you make it work out? No, traveling running a, a product business is amazing. I tried doing it while I was doing freelance work and that is extremely challenging because you have to get on the phone with people and schedule stuff and time zones are a big pain in the butt. But, you know, the, the sort of one thing that I couldn't do that a lot of entrepreneurs recommend is like having phone support and calling your customers just from the get go. I had to do everything asynchronously. But other than that, I mean, there was just no downside. Like, it can be very cheap, so you can keep your costs low. You can keep your runway long, and so you can, you know, sort of 
think in a long-term way. It's really motivating. Like you can stay super productive. Uh, you know, you work for, you know, 10 days straight every single day and you're like, oh, I really need a vacation. And you just kind of walk outside and you're on vacation, right? <laughs> like you don't have to kind of go on vacation. You're like, oh, well, I'm in Barcelona now. Like I'll just, you know, go for a run and enjoy it. You know, I'll go scuba diving in Thailand because I'm already here. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's really good. Um, th- there's just so many advantages to it, particularly if you're going to places that are relatively cheap. Uh, you can kind of live the kind of on-demand lifestyle of like, you know, never cooking, never doing your own laundry, never doing any of that stuff. But it's just super affordable because, um, you know, whatever, you're in Indonesia or you're in Thailand or you're in India or something like that. So, yeah, no, it's really focusing. Um, it, it has affected the way that I have grown the business. Um, I think the main thing is that even now that I have a team, I have you know three uh, employees that work for StormMapper. They're distributed all over the world. We are necessarily like incredibly asynchronous. So we use Slack a little bit, but like for the most part, you know, we're using stuff like Asana. We're trading things off in a way that isn't. We aren't able to just sort of hop on the phone or or you know reach over and talk to someone to sort of solve a problem. Um, and it's the same thing with, with all of our customers, right? Customer support tends to happen very asynchronously and stuff like that. So we've had to kind of build systems and build uh, opinions around how we do stuff that reflects the fact that we've you know, really no idea where anyone on the team is at any one given time. But it's been great. Yeah, absolutely recommend it. How did you go from, from being by yourself to, to being a team of what, did you say three people? Yeah, three people now. Uh, well, three other people, uh, including myself. Um, so, uh, well, I mean, I got the the money for it. I guess is how I went there. You know, um, <laughs> once the you know, I think the the kind of uh, real beauty of having recurring revenue with a low churn rate is that you know your your month to month revenue ends up being you know very very predictable. So you can really confidently kind of bring. Uh, your first employee on because you know almost certainly you'll be able to pay them you know kind of indefinitely and so yeah the I think pretty quickly uh, after I kind of hit what was kind of for me like a full-time salary after I was sort of over like eighty thousand dollars a year I decided that you know I wanted to start adding some people to the team so pretty quickly added someone doing support and uh, a rails developer And that was in part just because I think, you know, I kind of always had the idea that, you know, a a zillion different business books have advocated is that, you know, ultimately you want to sort of extricate yourself from your business so you can work on the business and not in the business and all that kind of stuff. Um, And that's a really good kind of framework through which to build a company is to try to eliminate your own necessity. Um, so that kind of requires people. And the other thing was I was traveling and I wanted to do, you know, I was doing the digital nomad thing, which means you're kind of limited to these, you know, these cities that have fast internet and stuff like that. But I wanted to do some more interesting stuff. And, you know, I wanted to go hike Kilimanjaro and uh, do things that required being offline for, for a week at a time. Uh, and so I needed a team. <laughs> so um, I went in and started hiring and, and I learned quite a bit, you know, hiring for those two positions because I hired kind of iterated through several people in both positions before getting to the current team, which I'm super happy with. And, you know, kind of learned a lot there about how to do that. What'd you learn specifically? Uh, what are your what are your best hiring tips? Um, so a couple of things, most of them I just stole from other people, but they're pretty good when you put them together. Like, um, one of them is to, uh, which is kind of taken from Matt Mullenweg at WordPress, who talks about like, use the same communication tools that you'll use in the work, use those same tools to hire. Right. So one of the kind of classic problems is that people, for whatever reason, when you're hiring someone, you have this bias towards like a face to face conversation. Like, let's have a video chat and let's, you know, speak to each other. And then like you do the work and it's like 99 percent of your communication is like, you know, one sentence, get commits and like random like gifts on Slack and stuff like that. And you're like, well, I didn't really actually test whether or not you were a good communicator in the medium that we're actually going to use. 
So um, I kind of switched to using Slack and Asana as the tools by which I actually hire and interview people. And that turns out, it, it feels a little weird at the beginning when you know someone's like, hey, okay, when do I interview? Like, let's hop on Skype. And you're like, no, actually, let's stick to text for the interview. And we'll just sit there and, and kind of chat. Uh, it seems strange, but actually, it turns out to be a much better predictor of um, who you're going to be able to collaborate well with. And then another thing I learned was to really like massively document you know, things like how the work is to be done at a scale that seems like ludicrous when you're a tiny team. It's like, this is crazy. Why did I just make like, you know, a sort of 2000 word FAQ for like the first customer support person? Surely they can just ask you questions. But starting that process really early on of just documenting things um, is really important. Uh, it starts to give them a lot greater sense of autonomy, right? When you just kind of put down rules and just say, look, the, the sort of rules and the structure are there, make decisions within that framework, as opposed to like constantly asking you questions and things for permission and stuff like that. It's amazing how that helps grow a team's autonomy over time. Um, so documenting and using the tools, the same tools for all the different purposes, I think we're really helpful lessons that I just kind of learned by doing really. I've never heard of the the advice to conduct interviews using the same channels that you do work over. How exactly does a Slack interview go if you're interviewing, let's say, your Rails developer? Uh, I mean, just the same as, as, you know, you would if you were coworkers, you know, you kind of set a time and you just sit there and, and you know, kind of sit there and, and have a chat. When you actually do it, I mean, there's nothing hard about it. It just feels a little weird and it goes slower, right? Obviously you need to allocate more time because it's a little bit slower, but that's actually good, right? Like that's what you learn. Like, do they get bored? Like, you know, do they uh, end up typing like these super long, incredibly verbose things that you don't want to read? Like, um, <laughs> you know, but like, seriously, you have people who are very good communicators and then like they send you, you know, emails that are like 12 paragraphs long and you're like, Oh, this is like, a fundamental flaw in our ability to collaborate like, that I like didn't discover until I kind of hired you. So it, it seems weird like for a half second, but then it's like so obvious that it's the right thing to do. While we're talking about Rails developers, can you talk a little bit about how you built StormMapper and, and the technology behind it? Uh, yeah, I mean, StormMapper is a, fundamentally it's a, it's a Rails app. And then it has kind of bolted onto it like a uh, third-party JavaScript widget, right? So it's like an embeddable widget, like what uh, Wufu or the Discuss commenting engine and stuff like that um, have. Um, you know, there's nothing super fancy about it. I wrote a, a post, it's, it's kind of old now on Medium about, you know, bootstrapping SaaS with these services. But like I bolted together just a ton of, services. We still use Heroku. Uh, we still use, you know, all kinds of add-ons and stuff like that. I'm really opposed to reinventing the wheel in general. I think that, you know, you get so much value from products like that. It's in my opinion, like very worth it to just, you know, pay for existing services rather than to try to build your own custom version of it. I know other people have, <laughs> have strong opinions in the other, in both directions. Um, but that's the approach we've taken and, uh, it's worked pretty well. Were you learning a lot on the job or, or did you come into this knowing exactly how to code everything that you needed to build? No, I, I learned everything on the fly. I mean, I, so a year prior to launching StoreMapper, I'd never, written a line of code in my entire life. I basically didn't even know like, you know, what HTML and CSS were. Like I never, as a kid, I didn't, I didn't write code. I didn't have a, you know, a, a GeoCities website that I was learning how to make blink tags on. I did none of that stuff. And I taught, started teaching myself to code because I had a, a previous startup that I just basically spent forever failing to find a technical co-founder who would come and work for me for free, which is, you know, not that surprising, really. I still don't understand how other people do it, but, but I decided to teach myself to code. And then I was teaching myself to code and I was like, well, I may as well like just get paid to learn. So I would go on things like Upwork, Elance, and just bid on jobs that I didn't really know how to do at all. 
And then I would somehow win some of these jobs and then I would go learn how to do it. And that would be sort of how I would, uh, how I would, uh, you know, continue learning to code. And, and that was how I started to get freelance clients that ultimately were the ones that kind of, you know, uh, asked me to build uh, store mapper. So it all kind of flowed from me just trying to learn how to code. But I mean, I was making everything up on the fly. I think, you know, maybe I did a, a very rough technical sketch like when I first had the idea, kind of thought it through for maybe 20 minutes, like, okay, like, do I know the technologies that, that could make this happen? And I was pretty confident that I could. And that was, that was about it, really. I don't know. I don't know whether to label that as an inspiring story of how anybody can learn to code, or as a cautionary tale of why you should never find dev work on Upwork. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, you know, I had, I had happy customers every time, you know, um, <laughs> I had an extremely high rating on Upwork, uh, you know, went awesome. back when I had one, but yes, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so another cool thing about store mapper is that obviously you're pretty transparent about, about what you're doing. You've written about the behind the scenes, you came in indie hackers, you share your revenue, uh, without flinching. Is there an underlying philosophy beyond that, behind that? Uh, there is, but it's not an underlying business philosophy. Uh, I think some people have tried to sort of argue that, you know, transparency is a competitive advantage. Um, I think that is the case if your, your customer base and your target audience overlap really nicely, right? So if you build a product for software entrepreneurs, and, you know, so, and then you kind of like are blogging about what it's like to be a software entrepreneur, then there's a really strong business case there. In my case, it's less so because the audience for how I'm building this business is not so much like the type of people that actually would sign up for store mapper. So there's been kind of very little overlap there, but the, the underlying case for me has just been like, I learned an absolute ton from you know, a, a lot of people that are on indie hackers or should be right, like you know Patrick McKenzie and uh, Rob Walling and the guys at Buffer and the guys um, at and uh, uh, the, I don't know the whole uh, Keen IO. You know, like a, a lot of these companies that um, were kind of doing this transparency stuff. Just I learned so much from that that I felt like. I don't know, I needed to also contribute to that body of knowledge and that keeping all that stuff private um, just didn't really, you know, just wasn't good karma. And, and the kind of last component of that was, you know, I started blogging with like a kind of more of a, an advice aspect to it, right? It was less of just descriptive, like, here's what I did and more like, let me try and generalize this into what works and what doesn't. And when you boil that down, you're kind of telling people like how to make money on the internet. And it's just so easy to come across and to just, you know, veer into like scam, spammy territory. And there's just so much garbage in that universe that I feel like being transparent about your business kind of gives you like just the right amount of credibility, right? Like not necessarily like, you know, people know you're not like completely full of crap, which there are many people out there who are just like, learn how I grew my business to, you know, like $1 million in recurring revenue. And there's just no evidence that they did that at all. Like, um, and at the same time, like, you know, some people get kind of outsized credit as well. It's like, look, you're not like a guru. You built one business and it's doing okay. And you're not, you know, a billionaire, but like, so just, you know, take this advice if I'm going to call it advice, you know, with the appropriate kind of grain of salt. And I found that very, like I sort of cleansed myself of, uh, of, of those concerns by just saying, look, take this for what it is. Here's what I'm doing with my actual business, right? Personally, when I was sharing Andy Hacker's revenue stats, when I actually had revenue stats, I just found it fun to share. Enough people don't share that kind of stuff that if you do, you will inevitably get people who comment on it and give you tips or feedback or ask you questions. And I think one of the hardest things about being a founder is just the motivational aspect. Like, how do you keep going with something that's potentially a lot of work, that's not always uh, the most rewarding? And having that community, being able to go on Twitter and, and talk to people about what you're doing and get feedback or a community forum or, or blogging and getting comments, I found it's just a really fun and social and engaging thing that has kept me motivated. Uh, and in the past, when I would just go heads down and code, 
and not talk about what I was doing. It was almost the most, always the loneliest, most depressing thing. No, I think that's probably a, a shorter and more accurate answer for, for me as well, is that I just found it fun. I think I might be, you know, ex post facto rationalizing those decisions, but at the time it was like, other people are doing it. I enjoy engaging it with them. I'm doing this. Oh, this is fun. I'll keep doing it. You know, <laughs> like I probably honestly did it because I like wrote one blog post inspired by some of those other guys. And like, you know, it was on the front page of Hacker News for like a day. And I was like, oh, that was fun. And then I did it again. <laughs> like, honestly, that's probably the whole story. <laughs> yeah. And then MicroConf a couple weeks ago, it was also really cool because it was, was that your first MicroConf? Had you been before? It was my first MicroConf. Yeah. It was my first too, and I'd never been in a place where there were hundreds of people that you could talk to about coming up with an idea or finding your first customers or dealing with churn, and everybody understood what you were talking about and would listen intently and not have their eyes glaze over and get bored uh, instantly. <laughs> and I think everybody, you need you need something like that. It's At least it helps to have some sort of community of people who understand what you're talking about, because I know I'd bore my girlfriend to death when I would go home and just talk about... <laughs> Talk, talk about you know the numbers for indie hackers and the numbers for task force uh and it's demotivating i think probably the number one reason that most people who get started here die not not the reason that they die but the reason that their businesses die is because they give up you know they stop yeah and that's not to say that like their business was on a great track before they stopped it probably wasn't doing very well if you end up quitting but if you stick with it, you learn over time, the same way that you learned how to code, the same way that you learned how to find you know, where the next set of customers was going to come from after you exhausted your first channel. Sticking with it over a long period of time is crucial to learning what works and what doesn't. And if you want to stick with it, it helps to have some sort of community of people to lean on, to motivate you and to give you advice uh, instead of doing it all alone. No, I completely agree. Yeah. in such an interesting contrast from when you know I was living in places like Ubud, Bali, or or Barcelona or Budapest and you go into a co-working space and it's just like a bunch of people working on businesses like that. Like now I'm living in DC and I'm hanging out with, you know, normal humans. And like when I go to parties and stuff like that, like they just, I mean, it's not their fault. They just like do not care at all about like any of the, you know, details of, of my business. Um, and, you know, it was nice and really refreshing to kind of get back into an environment like that, which I mean, it's even more so, right, because MicroConf is so kind of self, self-selecting self to just immediately dive in to these discussions with, with folks that you just, you know, you don't have to go through like any kind of awkward, you know, discussion. It's like, oh, I know this person is probably running a business and has similar concerns and this person, you know, you can just immediately dive into those discussions super intensely for several days. Um, Yeah, it was super, super useful. Speaking Um, of speaking of normal humans, I was just downstairs talking to uh, Patrick McKenzie and I asked him, oh, do you know, are you familiar with Tyler Tringas? And he's like, oh, describe his business to me because I I often recognize (laughs) people by their business more than by (laughs) by the actual name. (laughs) But I mean, that's it. It's it's people that, that speak your language and, and you can really talk to you about things. So where can people go to find out more about StoreMapper and about what you're up to nowadays? Uh, so StoreMapper is uh, StoreMapper.co. Um, hopefully it's StoreMapper.com very soon. Fingers crossed. Maybe by the time this is published. Uh, but stick with CEO just in case. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I, I blog um, about, about StoreMapper and about kind of uh, what I'm calling kind of micro SaaS, uh, bootstrap SaaS issues in general on my website, which is just tylertringas.com, T-R-I-N-G-A-S.com. And that's it. Cool. Thanks for coming on the show, Tyler. Yeah, thanks for having me. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, you should join me and a whole bunch of other indie hackers and entrepreneurs on the IndieHackers.com forum, where we talk about things like how to come up with a good idea and how to find your first paying customers. Also, if you're working on a business or a product of your own, it's a great place to come and get feedback from the community on what you're working on. Again, that's www.IndieHackers.com forum. Thanks, and I'll see you guys next time.